Thank you, Dave. Like Zach said, my name's Tim. I'm the worship minister. I'm usually over there, but today I'm here. So it's kind of crazy whenever Zach was like, okay, this is the end of the announcements. I started like wanting to walk up there to get my guitar, but uh, it's crazy. It's nice to, I always love sitting in the congregation, getting to hear everybody sing because usually I have these monitors here that are so loud, so I don't get to hear y'all as much as I want to, which is why I'm always backing up from the mic so I get to hear it. Uh, so it's great to be with y'all. I'm encouraged by y'all singing. Uh, if you haven't already, why don't you go ahead and open up to Romans 8, uh, verse 18 through 25 is where we'll be today. While you do that, uh, I want to talk about something very important, and that is brisket, <clears throat> barbecue, Texas barbecue, Texas smoked brisket. Uh, that is my favorite thing to eat in the whole world. If I had to eat only one thing for the rest of my life, I would eat smoked brisket, and my life would be short because <laughs> it would take its toll. But I love smoked brisket, and part of the reason why I love it so much is because the majority of my life, I hated it. The majority of my life, what people would call brisket was like this dry, chewy substance that's terrible. And you need a lot of sauce. You got to put all the sauce on it. It's like if someone was going to make beef jerky and they took it out too early. That's what brisket was, in my opinion. The kind of stuff that you, well, I won't name any restaurants, but I will, I will harp on a hard eight. That's not brisket, okay? I'm not a fan. I like good, real, delicious, melt-in-your-mouth brisket. And so I, I've become sort of this brisket evangelist. I have to tell everybody about the good news of good brisket. Uh, because for so much of my life, I suffered thinking people would say, I love brisket. And then I'd have that stuff at like a family reunion or at a, a wedding or something. And it was awful. And you're like drowning it in sauce for it to be bearable. All of that to say, I would travel pretty far, long distances, just to get good brisket. Central Texas, there's a ton of great brisket down there, specifically the greatest brisket that you can get in the entire world. That's something only an American would say. In the entire world, the best brisket is at Franklin's Barbecue. Amen. Franklin's Barbecue in Austin, Texas. It is otherworldly. It is certainly, it's actually certified, like won awards. It's the best brisket in the nation. But why don't we just say the world? That's what we do. Whenever we have like, you know, the World Series in baseball, oh, the world champions. So anyways, brisket, I'm a huge fan. And so I go to Franklin because I hear that it's the best brisket you can get. The late Anthony Bourdain went to Franklin Barbecue, and he said that it was just, there was nothing he had ever experienced like, like it. He's, he's been all over the world eating all this great food, and he, to watch him eat the brisket on his show, he's like shocked, almost crying because it's so good. It's just like supernatural. <clears throat> so naturally, I'm, it beckons me. I have to go try this brisket. It's calling to me and all these other people that are like me. So if you go to Franklin Barbecue, you can expect like a minimum three-hour line. It's like three to five hours. Uh, we waited for five hours. So right before I came on staff at Parkway, uh, Kelsey was seven months pregnant. My wife was seven months pregnant with our, with our son. And it was June, so it was starting to get hot outside. We were going to be in Austin. And so I said, I got an idea. You're already feeling nauseous because you're pregnant. You feel like an oven everywhere you walk because it's hot outside. And now it's getting hotter outside. Let's go wait five hours in a parking lot with no shade in the sun in the middle of the summer for some hot smoked meat. And she was like, okay, which is just a grace from God, okay? And so that's what we did. We got there at 8 a.m. The line was like from here to the back of our sanctuary. And they were telling us, yeah, you're probably going to eat at 1 o'clock. And that was true. That's what happened. 
And the sun came up. At first it was pleasant at 8 a.m., but then the sun comes up, and that's when things get real. It got real miserable real quick. It's like this concrete parking lot that just reflects the sun perfectly. Kelsey spent some time going in the car, getting some AC. I had like an umbrella in the car that I brought out to try to like shade her and make it less miserable. But then the sun started melting my umbrella. And so it was hot, all right? And we waited five hours and it was, it was pretty miserable. But the moment that we received this glorious inheritance of brisket... <laughs> The moment that we saw this stuff that they passed over to us from the counter, this, this glistening glory, the glistening is all fat, so that, that's how you know it's good. And when you ate of it, it was amazing. It was life-changing. We went with friends, and we like, weren't even talking to each other. We're sitting at the table just like weeping almost. It was so good. And it was so good that I, I forgot all about the misery we had just endured. In fact, if you wanted to go to Franklin tomorrow, and you were going to somehow teleport me there so I can just be there and all of a sudden be eating that brisket, I, I, would, I would stand in that line again. No problem. It's going to be 111 degrees? Great. I'll wear a hat. It's worth it. I would gladly endure the misery of that extremely long line because the glory of Franklin Barbecue's brisket is worth it. It's worth it. I don't consider this misery of standing in the sun. I, it's not because I like standing in the sun. I don't like being out in the heat. My pregnant wife told me many times I don't like being in the sun while I'm pregnant. <clears throat> she made sure that I understood that. It's not because we love the heat. It's because we love the brisket. We understand that as we await this glory, yes, we suffer in this five-hour-long line, but what's at the end of that line is certainly worth the suffering. And that is exactly... Exactly. It's a perfect analogy, what Paul is talking about this morning in Romans. Just kidding. It, but it's similar. <clears throat> Paul is, is acknowledging that the life of a Christian is one full of suffering. Jeff mentioned this last week, and we're just going to dive a little bit deeper into it this morning. But the life of a Christian is a life of suffering. But this suffering, this great, these great afflictions and these difficulties that we experience today are not worth comparing, according to Paul, to the spectacular glory that is to be revealed to us. So with that in mind, we're going to pray, and uh, we'll get into our text. Lord, we, we thank you for your kindness, the richness of your grace to us. Like Dave said, that we're going to be praising you eternally. And uh, I pray, Lord, that uh, you would be with us today. I pray, Lord, for all of us that we would be encouraged where we are discouraged, we would be challenged where we have grown complacent. And that ultimately, by your word, your, your word would be uh, what, what reigns in this place. That there would not be, I would not uh, butcher it in any way. But Lord, that your spirit would, would be our guide. That your truth would be proclaimed. And Lord, we would be conformed to the image of your son. We thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that you're a good father. It's in Christ's name that we pray all of this. Amen. So that in mind, let's begin with verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So Paul assumes that those he's writing to are, are experiencing or about to experience or will experience sufferings. He assumes this because he assumes that those he's writing to are Christians. And Paul has already argued last week that this suffering, this sort of, these afflictions are inevitable for the Christian. So let's look at where we left off last week in verse 17. Well, we'll start with verse 16. Romans 8, 16 through 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also 
be glorified with him. I want to talk about a couple of things. First off, it says we'll be glorified. And I just want to protect us from any thought. We're not going to be in a room and everybody's like worshiping the person on their left or something like that. We're all going to be on our thrones and everybody's worshiping each other. That's not what this word means. I've got a definition here from Wayne Grudem that I've kind of adapted for our purposes. Glorification refers to when Christ returns and raises the bodies of believers from the dead, reunites them with their souls, and simultaneously gives all believers, whether living or resurrected. So in the end, when Christ returns, there'll be some people that aren't dead. They're alive. And so this is just noting that whether they're already alive, they'll be given these resurrection bodies, or whether they're, they're dead, they'll be resurrected and given these resurrection bodies, these perfect resurrection bodies like his own, like Christ's. So that's what we mean when we talk about glorification. When he returns, raises the bodies of believers, transforms their bodies, resurrecting them to new life, to everlasting life, and, and changing their mortal bodies to immortal bodies. Okay? We'll talk more about this as the text goes on. But this is what Paul is going to be focusing on in our text today, the glorification of believers. That's the focus. So just put that in the back of your head. That's what we'll be talking about today. He says in verse 17, provided we suffer with him, with Christ, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So listen closely, real quick. Christ has already purchased your redemption. Christ has already uh, purchased your glorification. Your glorification is guaranteed if you are a believer, if you are indwelt by the Spirit. So don't read this and go, oh, I need to suffer in order to be glorified, so let's go find some suffering. That's not what Paul is saying at all. He's pointing out that the road to glorification, if it's a destination on a map, the way to it is necessarily suffering. It's already been traveled by Christ. We saw Christ blaze the trail, and it passes through many sufferings. Christ is described as this man well acquainted with grief. So he's not saying go find suffering so that you can be glorified, but if you're following on this path that Christ has already blazed, you can guarantee in the same way that he suffered, you'll pass through the same suffering. Acts 14, 21 through 22 says, when they, meaning Paul and his companions, had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the, of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And listen, to how he encur- listen to how encouraging this is. Saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Yes, Amen. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John 15.18-20, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. This is Jesus speaking. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Amen. So I'll pray as the people serving communion will come up. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to leave you there. We will suffer, but this suffering, as Paul says in verse 18 of Romans, is, is not worth comparing to what is ahead. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verse 19 says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. This past week, uh, I'm a student at Dallas Seminary, 
And this past week, uh, I was talking with a friend who went to A&M, as I also did. Whoop. And I was talking to him about the football season that was coming up, that just got played. A&M won a game. Hopefully, we win more games. I'm one of those naive uh, Texas A&M football fans that's always like, yeah, we'll maybe win eight games. But in my head, I'm like, I mean, we could, we could go all the way. We could win. I'm just so naive, and it's, it's not going to happen. But, and I say that now because I want to look like I'm, I'm not a dumb person in front of you. But in my mind, I'm actually thinking, we could really do it this year. It's going to happen. So I was talking to him about, like, here's how many games I think we're going to win. And there's a situation at A&M that we have two quarterbacks, and they're about, they're about equal to each other. So there's been this huge, they're trying to figure out who's going to be the quarterback. And so I, I said this statement. I want to make sure you hear my words so it'll, you'll be as perplexed as I was. I said, I think Kellen Mond, who's one of the quarterbacks, would be a better QB if he could throw more accurately. That's what I said. He would be a better QB than the other guy if he could throw a little more accurately. To which my friend responded, oh yeah, speaking of that, I found a great new coffee place in Dallas. I thought, what just happened there? Did I say something? I thought like, am I speaking in tongues and somehow something else is coming out and he's interpreting it differently? I didn't know what was happening. And he, he argued that he said, oh well, because you said QB and I went to this new coffee shop and the barista's name was Quentin Bauer and that his initials are QB and he goes by QB. That's what made me think of that. In reality, I think he just wanted me to stop talking about Aggie football. In the same way, I think verse 19 to me sounds like this non sequitur. It just sounds like Paul randomly starts talking. He's talking about how Christians will inevitably suffer. He's talking about how the suffering is incomparable to the glory that awaits us. Speaking of which, let's talk about creation, trees and, and birds and stuff. That makes no sense to me. When I first read that, I thought, what is Paul doing? This makes no sense. It, just, it doesn't follow. But he actually does have a point, unlike my friend, who was probably just lying to get me to stop talking about A&M. Paul is going to encourage believers to endure suffering by pointing out the steadfast endurance of creation, the trees and the birds and the stuff. Paul is going to encourage believers by pointing out the steadfast endurance of creation. It says in 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. This phrase with eager longing is really interesting. It has this, it's like this on edge. So for instance, whenever we're making my son Haddon, he's two years old, he's a thick little fella, but he's, he's starting to lean up as he's been you know, walking and running, which is sad. But he loves to eat. And so at breakfast, lunch, his snack in the afternoon and dinner, as we're making him the food, the whole time he's, he says, want some knack? Because he wants some snack, but he doesn't say the S. And so we'll be making him lunch, and he'll see that we're making him lunch. He'll run over the counter. he go, want some knack? We're like, yeah, buddy, we're making it. He goes, want some knack? We're like, yes, we're making it. Just go play over there with your tractor. He's like, want, want some knack? And he starts crying. He, he just he wants it. He's eager. He has this eager longing. He just wants this end. He's, he can almost taste it, and he just wants it right now. In the same way, creation waits with this, this eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, what does the revealing of the sons of God mean? What does that phrase mean? Paul is going to use, in fact, three different phrases throughout our text, throughout these eight verses, to refer to the same event. He's going to talk about the revealing of the sons of God. He's going to talk about adoption as sons. And he's going to talk about the redemption of our bodies. And these are all pointing to glorification. 
All of these are pointing to the same event. When you hear revealings of sons of God, adoption of sons, redemption of our bodies, think the resurrection of the dead, the transformation of believers from mortal to immortal bodies. So creation eagerly awaits this event. And my question for Paul is, why? What does this have to do with anything? Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the, the reason that creation eagerly awaits this glorification is because, why? Because it's, it's in bondage. It's in bondage to corruption. So what is Paul talking about? Creation's in bondage, therefore it awaits the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What on earth is this? In order to get this, what Paul has in view in our minds, we have to go all the way back to creation. All the way back, not the, the event, the event of God creating everything. We have to go back to creation. In the beginning, God created all things. Everything was good. And listen, there was this, it was his kingdom, this kingdom of God, his, his rule and reign over everything, and nothing was in opposition to God's rule and reign. There's no opposition to God's rule and reign. No one that wants to uh, thwart the kingdom. There's no uh, war, therefore. There's no disease. There's no sickness. There's no corruption, no decay, no death. Everything perfectly submitted harmoniously to God, to the rule and reign of God. God puts uh, mankind on the earth, his image bearer, to exercise dominion, the text says, over all of creation, to, to make sure that it continues to be fruitful, to tend it, to prune the trees. He tells man, don't eat of this fruit. There's this one thing, don't eat of this fruit. And man's, he has dominion over everything. He has dominion over the birds, over the fish. It says over all these creeping things. And, but we know what happens. Mankind is supposed to submit to God and his commands and exercise dominion over creation and creatures. And yet this creature comes along, this weird demonic talk, talking serpent, comes and tells Adam, well, well, did God really say, he talks to Eve and said, did, did God really say, was that really his command? Is that really for your good? So if you ever see a demonic serpent, just stamp on it. Just stomp it out immediately. That's what should have happened in exercising dominion. But no, instead, we see that this rebellion against the kingdom of God is inserted to the story of humanity. And so God gave mankind dominion over all creation, and yet mankind rejects this, this call. Instead, submits himself to creation and tries to subvert the authority of God. And so we see God pronounces this curse upon Adam in Genesis 3. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. You see that? I imagine the ground's like chilling and like watching what's happening. Like, oh no, what's man doing? And God's like, because you did this, mankind, cursed is the ground. And the ground's like, whoa, 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 what's happening? I'm, I'm here. I'm just hanging out. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So then the ground is cursed. The earth is cursed. Creation cannot fulfill all that it was created to fulfill. 
It experiences futility. It experiences decay, a bondage to corruption. John Calvin, in his uh, commentary on the book of Romans, he puts it this way, which is really succinct. The condemnation of mankind is imprinted on the heavens and on the earth and on all creatures. Jeremiah 12, uh, 4 says, speaking of this corruption coming down from mankind to the earth, how long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away. The evil of man, creation suffers as a result. So mankind's rebellion <clears throat> extends not only to himself, but, and, and, and to us too, we inherit the sin, but also to all underneath his dominion. All of creation is in bondage to corruption. So the image that I think of is, uh, is Enron, actually, the, the whole Enron scandal. Raise your hand if you have no idea what Enron is. I just wanted to see this. This would be interesting. Okay. You can Google it. Basically, it was this energy corporation, this multi-billion dollar huge business that the CEOs lied about the value of their company. They based the value of their company on the stock market. It was based on revenue that they had not yet earned. You're like, oh man, revenue, no thank you. So I'll just move on from that. Enron, basically, a few suits way up high, a few superiors, they committed crimes. They committed fraud. They sinned. But what was the result? 20,000 Enron employees lost their jobs as the company filed bankruptcy. You know how much investors lost from their mass mutual accounts, their 401ks, their retirement plans, their pensions? You know how much people lost? $60 billion because of a few select people. Did the investors do anything wrong? No. Did the employees, the majority of the 20,000 employees, did nothing wrong? And yet, they inherit, this, they inherit this, uh, these consequences from their authorities. They inherit these consequences. They were affected by the fall of their superiors. Likewise, mankind sinned, and all underneath him was subjected by God, God pronouncing this curse. They were subjected to futility. Mankind rebels against exercising godly dominion over creation. Creation then suffers. Therefore, creation eagerly awaits this restoration of its authoritative head. If, if mankind and their sin, there's this broad sweeping corruption of all underneath his authority, if mankind is restored, then you can expect broad sweeping restoration under all of mankind's authority. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, wasn't its idea, <laughs> but because of him being God, God who subjected it. In hope, notice that word, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In hope. We need to, we need to talk about this word hope because we don't use this word today the same way that New Testament authors are meaning it. In the New Testament, it means something very different from how we use it today. We say, oh, I hope we get to work on time when we leave five minutes late. We say, I hope I bought enough groceries for the family. Every week when I come to the office, I hope that I don't have to hear Zach talk about pirates. We, have this, we use this word in a way that's different from the way that the New Testament says it. And so I'll use a quote from R.C. Sproul kind of explaining this difference. We need to mark carefully the difference between the meaning of the word hope in the New Testament and the way the word normally functions in our language. 
When the Bible speaks of hope, it is talking about our confidence in the promises of God for the future. This hope is solid because it rests upon the promises of God, which nothing can ever frustrate. When God says something is going to happen in the future, it is going to happen. That's the hope that's being... God's not subjecting creation to futility and then crossing his fingers. Like, ugh, just hoping that there might be some future glorification of mankind. That's not what's taking place. He's already ordained it. It's going to happen. There will be a glorification of mankind, and creation will see the results of that. We'll, we'll experience the results, the trickle-down results of mankind's glorification. And creation finds encouragement in the midst of this bondage to corruption as a result of this reality, as a result of this hope that this will eventually happen. This future restoration is guaranteed by God. This was his plan all along. So it can endure futility, decay, corruption, and death today, knowing what awaits tomorrow. And it's been doing so since Genesis 3. We see this, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Kelsey, uh, with our first, with Haddon, she was in uh, labor with Haddon for at least 24 hours, maybe longer. That was a long time. It was crazy. And it, it was interesting how we, when we got to the hospital, uh, they took us down this labor and delivery hallway, and there were like four, four women that were like in the process of, of labor and delivery. And so you're walking down this hallway, and it's like, ah, ah, you know, all this, like, screaming, because everybody's in the midst of this, this agony. And then we got set in a room that was next door to someone who was kind of further along in the labor process, and she's, like, screaming, because, I mean, it's, it's agony. It's suffering. It's not something that anybody's like, you know what I think to do? I think I'll deliver a baby today. It's this pain. So it was a great welcome to the hospital. It's a specific type of suffering, though, I'm told. I'm told it's agony. I don't know. I've never experienced it. I hope I never do. This pain is different from anything else that we experience insofar as this pain ends in joy. The end of this pain is joy. It's this agony that promises new life at the end. This is agony that you can endure because of the immense joy that follows. So you're starting to see Paul's point in talking about creation, creation being in these birth pains, creation being subject to corruption. The whole point of this text is endure because of the glory that awaits. And now he starts talking about a creation to kind of get our minds thinking about, wait a second, this sounds a little bit like us. And in verse 20, 23, he, he turns. He says, not only the creation, but we ourselves. You're like, oh, he was talking about me the whole time. I had no idea. Paul, you got me. Who have the first fruits of the Spirit? We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So it turns out Paul's not just going on a random tangent about nature. He's personifying creation as a way of encouraging believers, those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's what, those are believers. To join creation in the midst of suffering. To endure creation, or to endure suffering in the same way that creation endures suffering patiently. Through decay, death, darkness. Enduring, awaiting the joy that is to come. So this is his point. Creation submitted to God doing what God called each aspect of creation to do. The sun rises and sets every day. Why? Because God 
told it to, and so now it does. The seasons change accordingly when they're supposed to, submitting to the call of God. God says in Job that he, he set the boundaries of the sea, and it's never going to go past that. It submits willingly. It submits to God's uh, will and purpose, yet it's bound to corruption. It experiences death and decay and brokenness and futility, and it suffers under the authority of wicked men. And likewise, believers, though we were at one time enemies of God, we have been adopted as children of God, and we submit to his kingdom. We, we glory in his rule and reign. We praise his name alone, and yet we too are bound to corruption. Like creation, we, we're, we're, we're persecuted. We find ourselves hated. We find ourselves suffering in afflictions. Our mortal bodies are weak and dying. We experience death. We have chronic illnesses and diseases that we can't find an answer to. And we suffer persecution from wicked men. We, too, experience these birth pains. And so if creation eagerly awaits our glorification, how much more shall we anticipate it with eager longing? As I mentioned earlier, Paul calls our glorification here uh, our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. I believe this is the focus of our text this morning, the resurrection and redemption of our bodies. That is, this is this, this glory that our present sufferings cannot be compared with. This is what Paul's focus is. And I'll talk more on this in a second. But first, what does Paul mean when he says we eagerly await our adoption? Because if you remember, the verse we, we just read, verse uh, six and 16 and 17 of Romans, said that we are children of God. And now this verse says we are going to be adopted in the future. So what, is this, what does this mean? Is Paul, like, contradicting himself? Has he messed up? Did he just have a, a, you know, a moment where he just forgot his theology? Paul is only meaning to point out that as children of God, we don't yet enjoy the fullness of what it means to be sons of God. We are sons of God and daughters, but we don't yet enjoy all that that means. How do I know? Because we still die. Because our bodies are not redeemed. We have, we have the first fruits, but not the full harvest. So let me illustrate it this way. Imagine you're an orphan living in an orphanage. In, uh, some, in, in an impoverished country far away. And you're told that you've been adopted by this kind, gracious, loving billionaire. You just, you've been adopted. And so you rejoice, you're excited, and he starts sending you these care packages just to encourage you. He sends you a picture of your room that's already made up waiting for you. He sends you pictures of, of your house. He sends you pictures of your brothers and sisters. And, and your new brothers and sisters, your siblings, they start writing you letters. They start writing you and say, we're so excited to meet you. Gosh, we're so, we're so excited. But are, are you adopted? Yes. But are you with? Are you, is the fullness of what it means to be a son of, of, your, of your new adopted father, has that been realized yet? No, you're still in the orphanage. You're still waiting. Are you adopted? Yes. But you're still in the orphanage, awaiting the day someday you're going to get to eat breakfast sitting across from your father face to face. But that day has not yet come. So yes, you're adopted. But we still await the fullness of the privileges of being sons and daughters of God. This is what John argues in 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. 
We are children of God. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So Paul is not saying that you aren't adopted now. Rather, he's emphasizing that the fullness of our adoption will come with the redemption of our bodies, the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Elsewhere, Paul describes this redemption in this way. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 53 says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. I'm going to start saying that in random context. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So again, he's talking about some people will be alive when Christ returns. So they won't die and then be resurrected. But everybody will be changed and given resurrected bodies, just to explain the context there. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. We shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So we are children of God now, fully children of God, but we are not yet experiencing all that that entails. We have the first fruits, not the full harvest. Therefore, we await, like creation, we await this coming day eagerly. We await our adoption eagerly. If creation waits it so eagerly, then how much more should we? Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So it was in hope, this guarantee that the sons of God will be redeemed and see their glorification. Here's this word again, hope, that we were saved. We were saved in this hope, in this guaranteed future that all of those who have been justified will be glorified. We're going to learn about that next week or in a couple weeks. I'm not sure. The moment you became a Christian, your life became one of waiting. You're in this, this now and not yet. That is the life of a Christian, waiting for what is to come. This is, in fact, your salvation is to this end. Those who are saved will be glorified. And Paul says, now hope that is seen is not hope. And I have to mention here, Jeff Ashley had a great joke here, and I have to give him credit for it. Uh, Jeff had a good joke about when you see Hope Jones. Hope that is seen is not hope. So if you see her, that's obviously not hope. That's a good joke. I'll tell Jeff that it landed great. That's why I had to give him credit. I knew that wasn't gonna, I was going to bomb. I was just like, no, it's not going to work. This theme of things that are unseen and things that are seen runs through the New Testament. So what are we talking about here? This is not referring to things that are visible and things that are invisible or something like that. Instead, that which is, that which is seen in the current experience, that is... That is the seen stuff. The stuff that we see is what we currently experience, where what is unseen is outside of our current experience, whether it be the future. The Bible sometimes uses it in the past. So let me give you an example, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, 
but the things that are unseen are eternal. So this text shares the same point as our text this morning. We look to the things that are unseen that come after this life of suffering, i.e., the resurrection, the restoration of all things, the redemption of our bodies, the glorification. We look to the things that we cannot yet see, things that are unseen, that are future, that we don't have in front of us. And this is all Paul, this almost sounds like a riddle, uh, Paul's text in 24 through 25. Here's all that Paul is trying to say with this. The Christian life is one of hoping for what is not yet. That's what you're saved into, this faith of what will be is not yet. If we were already resurrected, then this would negate our hope. There's no reason to hope if we're already resurrected. But Christ has not come yet, so through suffering, we await the fulfillment of our hope patiently. Just like creation eagerly awaits this coming day that is not yet, this thing that is unseen, that is not before our eyes, eagerly expecting that day. That is what we also hope for. So I kind of want to break, I want to examine this hope because I'm aware of this, I'm aware of this tendency among us, it's, it's within me as well, to feel very disconnected from this passage. There are many of us who hear all of this and then we just, we kind of remain unaffected. I'm talking about believers. Paul has basically said you're going to suffer, but whatever you're suffering, it, it pales in comparison to what is ahead. And you're like, great. So what? <laughs> great. I'm suffering a lot, and it's going to be better someday. Okay. Great. Our Christian culture is really good about talking about what is to come. We talk about it all the time. The idea that our present life is not as great as eternal life is kind of old news. We've probably heard that. If you grew up in the church, you've heard that so much. You know, I'll fly away. Not a huge fan of that song. But one day... We await this thing. It's going to be so much better than the present. We're used to this idea. And so my question is, why then, if we're used to this concept, if we're so familiar with this concept of now being suffering and later being glorification, things that are unseen is what we hope for rather than things that are seen, why then do we so often hope for things that are seen rather than what is unseen? Why do we do this? If you examine what you think about most throughout the day, how much time do you spend investing your energy in this present life rather than a view of what is to come? How much time do you, do you spend in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of this present life, do you spend thinking about this suffering, this present life with no view of what is to come? Imagine doing that in, in childbirth. All you're thinking about is the suffering with no view of something to come. It's just this eternal suffering, this eternal thinking about what is here right now rather than what is to come. Or what about this? Do you view your relationship to God through how close you feel to him right now rather than how close you, he has promised that you will be in eternity? Is that how you judge the reality? Is that how you judge truth? How you feel right now in this present reality of suffering? That's how close I am to God rather than when you experience the fullness of your adoption at the resurrection, at the glorification. Many of us are enduring suffering in here. We've We've, we've had people stand up and we've prayed for people in our services. We have people that are just experiencing deep, painful suffering. And in suffering, what is sustaining you? What is it that is, is sustaining you? What is it that you have in view in the midst of your suffering? Is it, if it's fixing yourself or finding the solution to reduce pain or 
figuring out how to avoid more difficulties, that's not, Paul's saying that's not sustainable. That's not sustainable. It's like laboring in childbirth with no end. It's not sustainable. Your wheels will just keep spinning, going from solution to solution to solution to solution. Why? Because your solution is not something seen. It is future. It's unseen. What is sustaining you in suffering? God has certainly ordained medicine. He's ordained treatments as good gifts for us. Keep taking your pills. That's not what I'm saying. (laughs) Okay? But we cannot let the gifts move our attention away from the giver. These sufferings produce this, this groaning in us, but as we groan, our hearts are invigorated with adoration of our Father who gives us these good gifts. We don't hope in the gifts for what is seen. We hope for what is unseen, our Heavenly Father. These, these sufferings are meant to enliven our worship of God. But if our view is only on what is seen, then suffering is certainly not going to produce worship. How could it? How can you worship when... All that you see is the suffering around you with no view of what is to come, of what is unseen. Our hope is that we are our children of God. He is our loving Father. If you didn't listen to Jeff's sermon last week, please do. It is amazing how many of us, yes, it's easy to see God as sovereign ruler, as, as king, as creator, as Lord, but we have a terrible time seeing him as our loving Father. He, he loves you. He doesn't just put up with you. He enjoys you. He rejoices over you. He delights in you. If you have a child, in the same way you delight in your child, the father, it's a shadow of the father's love for you. And because of this love with which he has loved us, he will grant us to live with him in his kingdom where there is no more suffering, where there's no more disease, no more war, no more oppression. Because he's a good father. He gives good gifts to us. So my prayer is that this would orient us. We would, we would, our, our eyes would be fixed on what is, seen, what is unseen in the same way that we sang, oh, praise the name of our Lord, our God, as we're going to sing that forever. May that orient our understanding of what is before us rather than letting our hope be diminished by what is before us, rather than letting what we know is to come to be somehow diminished or, or taken away because of the great suffering that we experience today. So I'm going to pray for us those who are uh, going to be serving community, communion, come forward. Lord, good and loving Father, we thank you for the richness of your gifts. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your steadfastness, for your faithfulness to us. I pray, Lord, that for those of us who are just enduring difficult times of suffering, Lord, I pray that our hope would not be in in some temporary lightning of difficulty. Lord, I pray that we would, that we would be trees planted next to uh, good streams of water, that when the wind blows, the winds of suffering blow, because we would not be blown over, or that we would be anchored to your goodness, your truth. I pray that we would pursue knowing you, trusting you, It's so much easier to suffer when you trust, you love, and you know the God who has ordained your suffering. So I pray, Lord, that you would enliven our hearts to worship you in the midst of suffering. As as creation awaits this final day when we will be glorified, Lord, I pray that uh, that is also what we would hope for.
And Lord, as we, I pray this hope would transform how we exist today. For those of us who are discouraged, Lord, I pray that you would encourage. But I pray that your church would be a place of, of conviction and, and challenge and encouragement. We confess that apart from you, we can do nothing. Lord, we, we need you. We're grateful for the gifts you give. May we love you for those gifts and not the gifts at the expense of loving you. It's in Christ's name we pray all of this. Amen.